Father, we have before us a record, a reliable, trustworthy record of your of the testimony of your actions, your speech, your history. You gave us the scriptures so that we would be protected from myth-making. You gave us the scriptures that we would be protected from the twisting of your truth. Thank you, Father, that we have before us uh, these texts that we can look at. But But above and beyond everything, we ask, Lord, that we would not... Uh, just take notes and go away. But we would encounter you and be changed, that you would draw awesomely near. And in the name of Christ we pray, amen. Okay, what speech reveals, that'll be Psalm 33. What the incarnation reveals, what the incarnation reveals, that'll be Matthew chapter 1. And then what, and then what God must yet reveal And then we'll be looking at various texts on that. So what does speech reveal? Look at Psalm 33. Psalm 33 right there for you. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Look at verse 9. For he spoke and it came to be. Uh, He commanded and it stood firm. All of this sets up the most amazing event in world history, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John chapter 1. The only way you can know what a person is thinking is if they talk. (laughs) Now, some of you spouses, you might be able to figure out or finish each other's sentences, right? You do that pretty well, right? All right, we'll give an exception to that rule. But in almost all occasions... In, in circumstances, you'll never know if you're at some Christmas party and no one or someone you're next to there at the punch bowl and they say nothing. You will not know what they're thinking until they speak. Now, that may not be the most profound thing you've ever heard in your life, but that is as simple as I can get it. And that is that in our scriptures, what we have is a revelation of what God is thinking. The invisible God has let his mind be known. We think of the creation account when we are brought into a conversation within the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit where we hear these words, let us make And so God is thinking about making a universe. Now, that is how we get to know a person. God's speech reveals his thoughts and his intent. God does not speak empty words. He does not have plans that are just spoken without any intent of coming to fruition The Lord spoke and it came to be. Look at verse 9. The Lord spoke and it came to be. If you've got a hold of God's speech, if you've heard God's speech, you have his intentions. You have his thoughts. That's pretty good stuff. You have his plans and 
we learn in the Bible that when God speaks, he's actually creating what he says. He's doing what he says as he says it. Now, there's different kinds of speech in our Bible. For instance, there is a word from God that destroys. Isaiah 11:5. nations are in an uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. God's speech. We have also speech that saves. Genesis 12, God speaking to Abraham. The Lord had said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. What an amazing moment in Scripture, Genesis 12. God begins to roll out the plan of salvation through a man named Abraham. God blesses by saving. And he promises that through, um, through Abraham, all peoples on the earth will be blessed. There's also a healing word. God, we think of God lifting up the downcast and healing the brokenhearted. Psalm 107.20, he sent his word forth and he healed them. Isaiah 41, verse 10, I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. There's different kinds of speech within the Bible. The word God speaks is reliable. There are some some 242 references in our Old Testament to this phrase or references 242 times the word of Yahweh. 242 times. God's word is a power and it is ultimately a saving power. God's speech is his activity and it's a precious thing that God speaks and we are able to hear it. John 1 verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. All that has been made came about because God thought it and willed it to happen. Now, why, how does this all connect with Advent and the arrival of Christ? Well, of course, we learn that the unfolding drama of our Bibles is that God intends to bring his Savior King and become enfleshed in our, in our, and to join our human, humanity. Excuse me. So, what does speech reveal? Speech reveals God's intentions, God's purposes, God's reliability. We understand His character through what He says. Now, what does the incarnation reveal? As our, as our second idea. Now, we have our text from Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 23. Familiar text. It's essentially the beginning of the birth of Jesus. You'll notice in your Bibles there's a little subscription, uh, a subtitle there that says the birth of Jesus. So we have the background information. Joseph is concerned about Mary's pregnancy. He has only some human way of understanding this. 
and he needs divine revelation to explain what's going on. And this is the incarnation of the divine Son of God. And we have now God's thought to be redeemer of sinners now coming to action. And look at how Matthew records the visitation of the angel by way of a dream, the news that this child is born of the Holy is conceived of the Holy Spirit. Notice how Matthew concludes where should we look in where should our attention go? And he says, look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. We're brought immediately into the history of God's speech through the prophets and this great promise that there would be a child born of the son, a son of David, of course, is anticipated centuries and centuries before this time actually took place. Your wedding vows, your wedding vows are a promise about the future. You don't know what the, the future holds, but you can promise into the future where you are going to be. I am going to be next to you, honey. I will be here. And it is a promise into the future. My intention is solid. It is unwavering. We are speaking into the future and saying you can rely upon me. In our Bibles, we have God speaking into the future and saying this will take place. I will come and put on humanity and rescue them through the work of my son. You can rely upon my presence with you. Now this, of course, is what is lost in the Garden of Eden. Man is banished from the presence of God. And the the, uh, the, the journey of, of Scripture, the direction of Scripture, is a surprise. Man who is banished now has no hope of return unless God has mercy and God takes upon himself the task of returning himself to the center of man's existence. So the whole of our Bible is a return to God at the center of man's existence. God's presence is to be known, experienced. His will, his plans, his person are to be experienced and delighted in by human beings. What we have in our Bibles is God promising that he will come. This promise held a small group of people together for centuries. They're called the remnant of God's people. Israel as a people went through all kinds of turmoil, all kinds of difficulties, exiled by, by, by the Babylonians. They held on to this promise. There would be coming one day one who was even greater than David. 
It will be the return of God's government to his people, the return of God's people to being brought back together with God in their midst. And so they looked for one of David's sons to be the hope. And the Old Testament sort of ends with a sort of a, well, it doesn't happen. They return from the exile in Babylon, they rebuild the temple, and they have this full anticipation that the great days of David are going to return, and they don't. They continue their idolatrous ways, and everything kind of just kind of stops. The last prophet is Malachi, and there's this great moment of, now what? Some 400 years go by, and now we have we have a young couple, and Joseph uh, is is uh, is the the husband in in this relationship. Mary is the bride, wife, and she is going to bear a child, and he's going to be the one. He will be the sign of God's intention to be present continually, forever and ever, with God's people. He is going to be the presence. He's going to be the fulfillment of all the promises. And in our text, we learn that there is, uh, there is a, an emphasis upon the name of Jesus twice. You shall call him Jesus, and you shall call him Emmanuel. He is, the Hebrew word is Joshua. We have, our English is Jesus, and so you will call him Joshua Emmanuel, the Savior always present with us. His very near presence is with you. And all this took place to fulfill what the prophet had spoken. When God speaks, he doesn't use throwaway words. We live in a time of communication overload, don't we? And boy, have we got a lot of speech and tweets, and things going on. We have got news and information hitting us all the time. Promises. And what do we have is great cynicism in our day. Who is reliable? Who can come through? Who can I trust? Who has integrity? Before us today, is the speech of our God revealing his intention. And now we also see that the speech becomes real in action in the expected arrival of Jesus. This consistency of character is what we were meant to bask in. This consistency of character is meant to be the joy for our soul. God who promises and comes through is, of course, supposed to something to be our experience regularly. This consistency of character can melt cynicism. The cynic always presents themselves as sort of in the know, right? I know what's going on. I know that no, I know that no one can really be trusted. I know that there really is no, you know, there is no mercy in the universe. I know there is no kindness out there. 
What does the incarnation reveal? It reveals a consistency of character. God intends to save by restoring his presence to us. God's speech puts into action what we need. We need the revelation of this glorious person who has remained hidden but is now making himself known in the highest form of revelation possible. Think that Jesus is the culmination of God's revelation. Now, I want to caution all of us for a moment. There is a consistent message throughout the Bible. And here's what it is. It's not enough to hear this. The consistent message of the Bible is it's not enough to just hear this kind of talk or speech or even to hear the scriptures. That's quite a remarkable thing to say. Think about the people who Jesus taught. Think about the people who saw miracles. In John's gospel, it's somewhat kind of disturbing. Kind of the Woody Allens were there. And they saw miracles. They heard amazing speeches. They heard sermons, remarkable, explanations. But in John's gospel, it's very interesting. You've got this ragtag group of disciples, and they're kind of stumbling along in their belief and trust in Jesus. But not a lot of other people are doing it. It's not enough to even have Jesus speak truth. Something else must happen. It's not enough just to have our Bibles. Something else must happen. And this leads us to our third point. What God must yet reveal. We looked at speech for a moment. We looked at sort of an overview of the incarnation, which is his speech put into action. And now what God must yet reveal. Now in John 1.14, we have these words. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John writes this later in his life, perhaps one of the last of the New Testament books. And he reflects upon what it was that they saw in Jesus. The word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we saw something in him. We saw glory. We saw his worth. We saw his beauty. We saw his loveliness. It caused our souls to burst into joyful praise. It's glory as of the only Son from the Father. This is a unique glory. Can you perceive that glory? As you hear the scriptures, what happens inside you? Is God's Spirit, and this is what what God must yet do. God's spirit must accompany these words and make them life. Must make them come alive inside of us. The old English word quicken. We must become quickened inside us. This, 
There has to be an action and a work of God in us to help us see this is glorious news. And this is where we are desperate. What must God yet reveal? He must reveal the glory of this news. Countless people will go through this season. Sure, they will be able to reflect, move all through the, the consumerism, move all through all the... the, the there's so many unique uh, displays on lawns around around here. I saw a dinosaur the other day, and it's like, wow, we're all we're all over the place. Um, through all of that, it might be surprising that there might be a number of people who sort of get it. Well, this has to do with Jesus born at this time of year. Maybe able to be able to say that. But that isn't a revelation so much as it is sort of a fact. The revelation is the revelation that this is a glorious person who I must bow to. It's, he is the one who reveals the goodness of his actions. His speech and his action toward me are saving speech and they are saving actions. And this I must admit, I have come to the end of my powers of persuasion. I am not able to bring to you the glory of Jesus. God and God alone can do that. From 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says this, What no eye has seen nor heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. We have not seen the fullness of his love toward us. We cannot imagine it, but Paul says this. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received the Spirit, not of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The Spirit of God must take hold of the season of Advent, of the truth that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Spirit of God must take hold of these truths and make them become a saving power and delight in us. We have to see the glory of the King's speech for us. That he is speaking to us, willing for us to come to him. And of course, the Spirit of God must produce this in us. The Westminster Shorter Catechism describes what I've been talking about in terms of this effectual calling. The effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone. Not from anything at all foreseen in man 
who is altogether passive therein. Until being quickened, there it is, and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. If there's something in your heart that says, oh Jesus, you're beautiful. Oh Jesus, I sense the loveliness of your embodiment in my flesh, in joining my flesh. I, I sense the beauty and glory of what you've done for me and that you are communicating to me that you will never, ever leave me. If these are your thoughts, these are not your thoughts. These are the, spirit, the thoughts of the Spirit of God in you, quickening you. Let all the earth fear the Lord, Psalm 33, 8 says. And yet all the earth doesn't fear the Lord. <laughs> Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. All the inhabitants of the world don't stand in awe of him. And yet in the book of Revelation, we have this image of countless numbers beyond counting who are giving a response of awe to him. The Spirit of God effectually applies the Scripture to our hearts and we begin to now glory in it. Do you see the glory of the Son of God revealed as the intention of God for you? God's intention is not hidden anymore. The God you cannot see can be known can be understood. He is revealing himself. But we are also desperate for him to do that final work. It's not enough just to listen. It's not, just, not enough just to be polite on a Sunday morning. There must be a work where this becomes the delight of us, the center of us. And this, of course, is only what God can do by the Spirit of God. Verse 14 of chapter 2 of second of 1 Corinthians, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man responds to these things, the incarnation, the word made flesh the natural man responds with folly. Says this is ridiculous. But beloved, God has had mercy on you and he has brought the spirit of God to you and enabled you, quickened you, renewed you by the spirit. And if you sense in, in you now a love for Christ, that's the gift of God for you. And he's turning you to, toward himself. He has made you alive. Jesus, by the Spirit, has called you. And he's made this speech leap off the page and become life itself for you. Isn't this wonderful? Let's praise God. You join me in prayer. Let all the earth fear the Lord and let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him for he spoke and it came to be.
Lord, I thank you that you are a God of speech and you have let your speech be known to us and you are reliable, you are trustworthy. Father, I don't know who here has lived in doubt of your faithfulness. May this season renew their hearts. May they find the love of Christ in them to be their joy. Father, we thank you that you are renewing your people, bringing them to faith each time we gather, strengthening them by your will. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness among us.